Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. The Delta Plus variant? What does that mean? New Brunswick and Nova Scotia duking it out on the border. The Prime Minister has ramped up his anti-China talk. How come? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Kurt's virtual graduation today. Woohoo! Woohoo! You ready? At least you got your shirt on. Go for it. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I have my virtual grade 8 graduation tonight. The only thing good about that is I can wear my sweatpants and set up a shirt and tie. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! There you go. Uh, I think that's, um, let me think, uh, yeah, that's the second uh, virtual graduation, I think, for the Thompsons. It will be, because uh, Alicia, uh, my daughter, who's now in first year university, or finished that, uh, her grade 12 uh, graduation from last year. Yeah, that's it. Uh, it was virtual as well. And, you know, you can tell you got one of those signs out the front of your line, you know. Uh, anyway, it is what it is, and it's a big day, uh, as it is, uh, I'm sure, for lots of students as they wind down uh, their virtual school year. All right, uh, let's bring you up to date on all things uh, COVID-19 and bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid. He's a health policy expert and medical doctor with us now. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well. As always, happy to be with you, Scott. Thanks. Congratulations. So uh, the case, the cases, doctor, obviously continue to go down. That is good news. Uh, vaccine rates continue to go up. That is great news. Uh, and and your thoughts on where we are? The concern has always been variants, and whenever we hear variants, you know the years kind of peak up. And now we're hearing of a variant on a variant. I'm guessing uh, the Delta Plus. What can you tell us about all of that? Sure. So as of today, health officials have logged less than 255 infections in Ontario. So we're doing really well in terms of the number of cases of COVID-19. Additionally, we've reported more than 25% of adults over the age of 18 have been fully vaccinated in Ontario with two doses. That's also incredible news. We're hearing reports that more and more people are able to book their second appointment for the vaccine, so they're fully vaxxed. So this whole idea of a, a full-on summer is potential, is happening. We also know that the borders uh, are going to open up soon for Canadian citizens and residents, so they won't have to quarantine when they return back to the country. All of those things are measures towards we, you know, getting life back to normal as it was pre-COVID. I think what's important right now, Scott, is to get urge people to get vaccinated with their second dose as soon as possible. And I will also say on that note that if people tell you to take a day off the next day after your vaccination, that's probably a good idea because I've experienced myself a little bit of a fever afterwards, which is normal. Uh, And so my advice to the public listening to us today is to take a little break after you get your second dose. uh, Uh, And and did you experience the same thing with the first shot, doctor? Uh, I personally did not, actually. My, My first shot, I had Moderna, just to clarify for the public. And again, this is person specific. So please be careful with that. Not everybody will have those symptoms. Uh, Some people I know in my close circles have had no side effects after getting the vaccine, and some people have mild ones, and mine were mild. So I had a little bit of a fever, and I felt a little bit tired. You know, some people will have that. So my advice to the public would be that when you get your second dose, you know, follow closely with public health interventions. And if you have any symptoms that are severe, please contact your primary health care provider, your family doctor, or seek assistance in the emergency department where professionals can help you accordingly. But, you know, just the caution, take a little day uh, to relax as much as you can. Uh, and there is no way to measure why one person responds that way, one person doesn't. I, I'm. It sounds like exactly in the same boat as you are, except I took AZ the first time, and I, you know, you noticed a little fatigue, but that was about it. Uh, second shot with Pfizer, I, I did get a bit of a fever, uh, 24 hours, not a fever, but just sort of like the, you felt like you had the flu, but you really didn't, uh, for the, you know, the night after the 24 hours, uh, period after, and then, you know, totally fine. My wife, on the other hand, had both shots normally really reacts to vaccine, didn't react at all to this one. Exactly. That's exactly my point. And so every person is so different and the way they react to vaccine is different. And this is why it's so important to urge the public, if you feel like your symptoms are 
more than just the flu or you have shortness of breath, please reach out to your primary health care provider. Have your family doctor advise you accordingly or seek help at an emergency department. However, the majority of people seem to be okay within 24 hours. And so it is really person-specific. The good news is that more and more people are getting vaccinated. And so the idea here is that we will have a life back to normal once this vaccine rollout continues to happen throughout the province. Uh, let's talk about the Delta uh, Plus variant, or what is that? What can you tell us about that, Ahmad? Well, just to tell the public, the Delta variant was the one we were talking about earlier on Scott's show. It's about the variant that came out of India. That, if you remember, you know, really, uh, you know, was a major catastrophe for the health system of, of India, um, and now we're seeing it across the world. So, the Delta Plus is a, a new variant on the variant, and so that variant, the Delta, has sort of mutated and created a new variant called Delta Plus. And the reason why this is scary in a way is because it actually spreads more easily. It binds more easily to lung cells and it's potentially resistant to the therapy that the doctors use to treat COVID-19. So in summary, this is a bad one, the Delta Plus variant. Um, And right now it's actually been found in nine countries other than India. Those include the USA, UK, Portugal, Switzerland, Japan, Poland, Nepal, Russia and China. And the reason why I'm listing those countries to the public is because if you're thinking of traveling to any of those countries, please keep that in mind. For us Canadians, I think that will might have might have an influence on our policy of opening up borders with the USA. Now that we know that Delta Plus is in the U.S., it's currently we don't know that it is in Canada. It might uh, urge policymakers in Canada to keep borders or continue to close borders as much as they can, depending on how bad this Delta Plus variant is. As of now, Scott, it's too early to tell whether it has a significant threat on overall population health. We just know that this is a, a, a bad player, basically, and that we need to keep an eye out for. How do you get to a new variant? And, and maybe this is a better way to approach this question. If you are vaccinating aggressively, is that preventing the new variants from establishing themselves? Is, is still full vaccination or as close to it as you can get the best way to combat uh, the new variant because it seems the longer you wait to vaccinate or the longer it takes to get your population vaccinated the more we have a tendency a tendency to see these variants so is the solution there just get her done get her get everybody vaccinated asap that's partly true and that's what our health ministers and other health professionals have also urged for it's a continuous race between vaccinations and variants you know variants and viruses in general they mutate all the time um, and the most often changes are inconsequ- inconsequential. What, what I mean by that is that as viruses mutate all the time, the changes doesn't really cause that big of a harm. However, some of them can be harmful. Um, and so we have to keep an eye on those. This Delta Plus seems to be harmful. The extent of that harm will be dependent on how many people are vaccinated in the population and how uh, how this virus really mutates in communities. We still don't have a clear idea on this, but you're right. You know, the more people we vaccinate, the more we, we're going to provide protection for the public. We saw this with the uh, UK variant, if you remember. We know that our viruses, our, sorry, our vaccines uh, actually protect people from a lot of the variants out there. So, you know, it's just going to be a continuous sort of battle between the vaccine and the variants. So it really is just, a, well, it, obviously it's a lot more complex, but it's trying to stay one step ahead of that. Correct. Would that be accurate? And, and you know, the next question is, doctor, how, uh, how effective are these vaccines against the Delta Plus? And, of course, how would you know that yet? We don't know that yet. We don't know whether those vaccines we have are effective against Delta Plus. However, we do know they're effective against the other variants. And so we have some reassurance there. Uh, and as, again, I want to just reassure the public that we are not at a point where we're saying that the Delta Plus is a, it's a variant of uh, severe concern. Right now, right. it's a variant of interest. It will become a variant of severe concern once we can sort of have a certain criteria. And those are how easily transmissible is this virus, Delta virus, Delta Plus, how many more severe illnesses will happen, as in like how many more people this virus variant will cause ICU admission, and whether it, our current therapy can actually combat the variant. Right now, it doesn't seem like we've checked off all those lists. However, that might change. And so we're just everybody in the world is keeping a very close eye on this Delta Plus.
Many have talked, uh, doctor, about, you know, uh, eradicating this. Will we eradicate this? The fact that we have to have a, a global effort in order to eradicate this. Um, is that naive? And at the end of the day, is this just a continuous mutation? Uh, you know, the variants will continue to, to do what they do. I know. I, you know, I've said this on your show repeatedly from day one. I mean, you and I have been on this journey for so long. I said that we're never going to get to a point where COVID-19 will never exist in our terminology yeah. or our vocabulary. Well, it's always going to be there. The question becomes is how can we adapt to it? Uh, it's, you know, we need to just figure out a mechanism, which we're, I think we're, we're getting there. You know, I'm very optimistic. I think with the vaccines technology, I mean, the mRNA is, is, a, is a transformative sort of a big milestone in the way we produce vaccines. Uh, and that will have amazing, incredible consequences on other illnesses. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that we will continue to live with COVID-19. We will just get better at dealing with it. Um, and then maybe, just maybe, in maybe 20 or 30 years, we were able to fully eradicate it like we did with other viruses. However, for the time being, I suspect that we'll be living with COVID-19 for a while. Wow, uh, that leads in a whole different direction, but I got to try, uh, try to stay on track here. Um, so, yeah, you, you know, one day kids could be getting a COVID-19 vaccine like they got a measles vaccine or anything else. Correct. And then, yeah. that's it. so, you know, we were able to eradicate polio at some point. And so yeah. we know that vaccines do work and we eventually can eradicate big diseases and illnesses around the world. And so, you know, COVID-19 hopefully will be the same case. The point I'm trying to make here is not to be, a, a, you know, just to be optimistic. The future is bright that we have effective vaccines that we know will work. We also have treatments that work. And most importantly, Scott, we have a population that is adaptive and resilient. And we've demonstrated that, at least in Canada. We've demonstrated that Canadians are exceptionally resilient to a catastrophe. I mean, COVID-19 was not a joke to anybody. And so I think the future is bright ahead that we can, you know, weather any storm that comes our way. And that's with the vaccines and the treatments in place, we're definitely prepared for anything that comes our way. All right, let's talk about opening because that's uh, obviously now that we're seeing these great numbers and and more and more people uh, getting vaccinated, obviously people want to know what they can and they cannot do. Uh, As more and more become fully vaccinated, uh, do we, well, I'll ask you, what should we be doing and and specifically with borders? Because that's obviously, uh, there's a lot of pressure there right now. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are now voicing concerns about borders, not just what's happening within our countries, but even globally. I think people really want opening up of borders to some extent across the world. The ability to travel freely again has become a concern. I mean, I'll tell you, if you speak to people trying to book vacations with West or Air Canada or any other carrier, yeah. they'll tell you that the wait lines, Scott, are around 12 hours to get a hold mm. of a customer agent. What does that indicate to you? That indicates yeah. that, the general, that a big number of the population is eager to get on that vacation and get on that trip, which I don't blame them. I think people have been feeling like they've been locked up for so long and they want that trip. So I think the emphasis here is going to be on policymakers at a federal level, because this will be a federal level uh, jurisdiction for them to decide quickly uh, on how they want to move forward, especially, especially that we're increasing the number of fully vaccinated individuals. So I think it's going to be hard to sort of tell fully vaccinated individuals you there are certain restrictions that we need to put in place for your travel. Um, that is, I think, the government, the federal government specifically, is looking at further new guidance that we should be receiving for what happens to fully vaccinated people and travel and border control. Yeah, many are concerned that's taking so long because the Center for Disease Control in the United States had that out pretty quick when they were, uh, well, they st- you know, I think we surpassed them, certainly as far as, as first uh, doses, that's for sure. So in your opinion, doctor, uh, if, if you've had uh, two shots, two vaccination, you're fully vaccinated, what sort of advice do you have? Well, I think that if we look at other countries in the world, like Israel and others who have fully vaccinated individuals, they move towards the extreme version, which is, you know, people not wearing face masks in public, you know, access throughout the country, no borders in between. And so I think that that's probably what we're looking at in the, in the future. However, Canadians, we tend to be more conservative in our approach. And so I believe that we're, we're taking it slow and steady to ensure longevity. So I don't necessarily think that's a bad idea. I think, I, you know, I've always said this. I'd rather us deal with this carefully early on so we never have to go through massive lockdowns. None of us want them again. 
So if we are assured that by going slow and steady, we have a long-term sort of positive impact, then let's stay the course. And so I think the time will tell as we ramp up our vaccination plans and more Ontarians and Canadians overall get vaccinated, we're going to see positive effects come the fall. Many said, uh, and we'll, you know, we'll quote people what they said maybe six months ago or six weeks ago and say, once we hit 70% and 20% first and second doses, the doors were supposed to uh, swing open. The premier is going to speak later today on a different issue, but I'm sure this will be on the question and answer portion. Uh, do you think we'll see things start to open up a bit earlier? Yeah, because I think there's an enormous amount of pressure on the government, both provincially and federally, to release plans of people who are fully vaccinated. The more, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of people daily getting their second dose. Those individuals are now voicing their concern and saying out loud, what now? You, we are vaccinated. We've got our two doses. What's the plan? And so that urge will put a lot of pressure on the government to release those plans. And part of those plans might be, you know, a, a moving up, of opening up across the country. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert, uh, continuing the ongoing discussion on COVID-19 vaccines and where we are. And you know, we're in a great spot. And uh, kudos to everybody uh, for doing their part and allowing the country to be where it is. Uh, Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Same to you. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's very hard to compare provinces on any issue, even whether it's COVID-19 or, or anything uh, of any nature. Uh, but we've all looked to, uh, you know, our brothers and sisters in all the other provinces and how they're getting through this and where they are and where we are and all that sort of thing. And for the longest time, uh, the, the maritime provinces, the Atlantic bubble, uh, I mean, they were doing it right. Um, and, and, you know, there was low case counts and, and, uh, of course they had the bubble, which they were all staying within and such. Uh, but now, uh, there's, uh, there's tension in the bubble, uh, per se, especially along the border of, uh, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. And to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Graham Benjamin, digital broadcast journalist with Global News in Halifax and is with us now. Graham, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, yes. Uh, no, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's going as well as it can, for sure. Uh, give us a bit of backstory here, Graham. What is happening? How did this all start? All right. So uh, we pretty much, as you kind of said, the Maritime really been the envy of a lot of, you know, pandemic uh, handling, pandemic management. And we just know how wildly successful that Atlantic bubble was last year, how PEI, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland all kind of worked together so that uh, Maritimers and Atlantic Canadians could travel between provinces, help out the tourism sector, things along those lines. So uh, we know that um, they were trying to get this going for the past couple of weeks. And then Premier Rankin, he came in a couple of days ago and really said, OK, June 23rd is our date. We're going to make June 23rd the Atlantic bubble, um, uh, New Brunswick, PEI, Newfoundland, be able to travel freely between provinces. And then he kind of had to change the tone there yesterday because the way that Nova Scotia and New Brunswick are handling things are a little bit different. New Brunswick's actually opening up to the rest of Canada prior to when Nova Scotia is, which led uh, Premier Rankin here in Nova Scotia to kind of change their strategy and then treat New Brunswick as kind of any other province in Nova Scotia. So now it's kind of like the bubble between PEI, Newfoundland, and Nova Scotia. He kind of made New Brunswick a bit of an outcast in that. And, and then tensions really started to come to a head yesterday. Uh, after that briefing, there was a, a rally, a blockade in uh, Oxford, Nova Scotia, which is kind of a border community uh, near Cumberland County, um, just near the New Brunswick border. Um, I actually made my way up there uh, yesterday around 8.15 p.m. Uh, once we saw that it was happening. And um, I missed some of the, the heated tension that happened but um, between truckers and protesters, truckers trying to make their way through. But um, the protesters were kind of not allowing that to happen. And we've been seeing that pretty much all day at the border between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick today. Truckers trying to get through, everybody trying to get through for essential reasons, but being blocked by uh, local community members on both sides of the border. And uh, what about the, the traffic backlog? Are there, is there many there? Have many decided just to turn around and go back? What's it like at these blockages? See, that's the interesting thing. So I'm kind of like located right at the border and you can't see any traffic at all because there's so many blockages. The, the RCMP have kind of created blockades themselves in New Brunswick and border communities there as well as uh, 
in Amherst, Nova Scotia, which is about five kilometers from the border. So I haven't really seen too many. But what was interesting and what kind of actually made tensions come to a head today uh, was there was a, a group of trucks that were stuck from the blockade last night. So they got to the border today. They've been stuck here overnight. No food, no water, really not, nothing. No, nowhere to go to the bathroom. Uh, and then they actually finally eventually let them through. I was actually watching this all happen. Uh, and then one of the protesters didn't want to let them through. And then that created a fight amongst the protesters. So there was a bit of a scuffle. Police had to step in, break it up. Uh, they shook hands afterwards. There were no arrests or anything of that sort. But uh, definitely high tensions coming in spurts throughout the day here on the border. They shook hands afterwards, Graham. That's great to hear. All right. Uh, yeah. Everybody's getting a little spent on all of this. So where are the politicians on all of this at this point? See, that's what's interesting. So last night, the local MLA, uh, Elizabeth smith McCrossin, excuse me, is a PC MLA. She kind of promoted the blockade in Oxford to start. And now she's kind of switching gears a little bit to, you know, the public safety elements in play. So she's kind of recommending that we don't. Actually, Premier Rankin is all the way down in Lunenburg, down on the South Shore, which is, you know, about an hour and a half, oh, long, let's say two and a half, three hours away from the border, uh, doing a spending announcement for the film industry. So um, I know that there was uh, a media availability down there at one o'clock our time. So that just happened. Still waiting to see what his response to that is. And there will be a uh, briefing today, 2.30 local time in New Brunswick with Premier Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick to get his response to all of the happenings here on the border. How concerned are you or are they around these blockades? And it seems that the police are are trying to keep everybody apart uh, about the safety around this situation. At what point does this become a danger? Well, yeah, safety is definitely the priority here. And uh, it is really interesting to see how police are handling it. So really what happens is when a vehicle comes down here, um, police will talk to that person in the vehicle, come down to the blockade, talk to the protesters, Uh, The protesters will kind of converge amongst themselves to see if they're able to let those people in or not. There was one really interesting one where there was a trucker who said that they're 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 carrying blood and they need to get to a hospital. But some of the protesters thought it was vaccines. So they had to kind of prove that they actually had blood rather than vaccines. So there's a lot of anti-vaccine rhetoric that was happening during that discussion. They finally did confirm it was blood and let them through. But it is just interesting to see how police are handling kind of those conversations and not really stepping in as you might see in some other kind of uh, blockades in the past. Is there any sort of central body or organization or group that is that has formed this or is it just uh, angry citizens, concerned citizens? It's angry. It's angry citizens. It's Cumberland County and uh, the surrounding communities in New Brunswick. I mean, these border communities are so interlocked in their economies really hinge on each other's successes. And I've talked to some people down at the border today that say, I can almost see my my daughter's house or my, my family member's house from the border, but I haven't seen them since November because we haven't been allowed to cross. So I think when you just kind of, that optimism was put into their head of that June 23rd date, and then to have it taken away kind of in the 11th hour like that really made tensions come to a head here today. So uh, has uh, Nova Scotia shown any sign of changing its strategy? Uh, You said the premier was at a different event uh, a couple Mm. hours away. Uh, Well, well, traffic is stopped on the road. Uh, Sooner or later, he's got to say something. Where do you see this going, Graham? Well, we kind of expected it today. So like I said, I think that he's there for a funding announcement. You know, an election is kind of on the horizon. We've seen funding announcement after funding announcement over the past couple of weeks. But the focus of that press conference certainly wasn't the funding announcement for the film industry here. Certainly many questions that he's going to have to answer here this afternoon. I believe there's a COVID-19 briefing scheduled for tomorrow where reporters can kind of elaborate more on those questions. But from, uh, from that perspective, yeah, there's definitely answers that need to be had. We thought we might have got a briefing today, but he did go through with that funding announcement uh, down on the South Shore instead. All right, Graham Benjamin with us, digital broadcast journalist with Global News in Halifax, giving us uh, a report from what's happening along the Nova Scotia-New Brunswick border. Graham, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Uh, Let's bring in Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data and uh, Maritimer, and uh, very proud of it, I might add. Tim is with us now. So I lived in that 
town, that border town, Sackville, New Brunswick, where Mount Allison is and worked in Nova Scotia right across the way. So I know where Graham was, uh, where Graham is speaking of, I can see the border. I mean, normally there's nothing there. You just flow right in from, uh, from Moncton into Nova Scotia, into Amherst, Nova Scotia, and go all the way down. It's, there's a little bit of a war between Higgs and and you know New, New Brunswick Premier and Rankin at the moment for sure they're uh, they're not making each other happy. Uh, it, it is a very special place in the world, and everybody says that about Canada or about the Maritimes in Canada and Canadians that have traveled there. Uh, but it is a an extremely friendly place, and or or either that or maybe the rest of us are learning how how we're losing that. I don't know. But I, I found it interesting when we we're listening to Graham's uh, uh, report. There, he was saying that, of course, this the, this argument, this fight broke out, and, and you know they settled it down and they all shook hands and went away, which is. Good for them. I mean, we can certainly understand the frustration that everyone's going through here. What What are your thoughts on? Uh, and obviously, this is less about health care and more about politics and two different premiers. Yeah, well, yeah. So Blaine Higgs, as you remember, had an election last year, uh, and he won that election. He had it in September, and Ian Rankin's about to go into an election. The Nova Scotia premier, Nova Scotia, uh, over a month ago, had a you know, their largest outbreak um, of COVID-19 and things have settled down and Rankin, as other premiers in the region have done, is now trying to manage the still fear that exists in the region about opening up and the frustration that New Brunswick has created among some Nova Scotians as he plans to go to the polls. It's expected Rankin will go to the polls before Justin Trudeau. So they may have a July-August election there in Nova Scotia. And as you and I know from talking about this over the last 15 months, Atlantic Canadians have always been the most cautious and concerned because they've had 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 and continue to have such success pushing back COVID. So Rankin's trying to manage all of that. And then there is just genuine, genuine human frustration. A lot of us Atlantic Canadians that live uh, in Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, where have you, Manitoba, just want to get home. And yeah. family members in that region, as you point about, uh, point out, some will live in New Brunswick, some will live in PEI, because the bridge to PEI is only 50 kilometers away from that very spot or 70 kilometers away from that very spot, just want to see each other. So you have this cauldron, if you will, that's boiling up. Uh, talk about these two premiers. Would they have a chat before any of this happened? Uh, the the four Atlantic premiers have been pretty much in lockstep, but I, I think I saw that Rankin and Higgs did not have the opportunity to speak. I know, uh, and I think Rankin, legitimately, Nova Scotia premier, was legitimately surprised that Blaine Higgs moved as quickly as he did because New Brunswick had had some outbreak challenges as well. Then all of a sudden they were open for business. I mean, there now does seem to be a little bit of competitive pressure among the provinces because they're getting pressure, uh, as is the case in Ontario, from businesses who saying, look, things are changing quickly. People are getting double vaccinated quickly. We're managing the Delta variant quickly. We need people. We need people. Atlantic Canada in the summer, Scott, as you know, lives off tourism dollars um and i think you know higgs is trying to cash in on that and maybe acted before the other did act before some of the others did and that caused some friction too so uh as uh the reporter mentioned uh the premier he was at another part of the province doing a campaign thing and at the border there's the issues that are happening where do you see this going uh, I think by the time we get to next week, it'll all be settled. Um, it has to be, I think. So Rankin, Rankin came out and said Nova Scotia is fully open on June 30th. Do I, have, I think I have that right if you have two vaxes and then you have to do one nasal swab or something. Uh, Newfoundland fully opens on July 1st. I booked my ticket, by the way, to go on July 4th. Um, so I, I think by next week it'll be sorted uh, because again the 
the the, the trajectory of the virus has, has has gone down, so that's positive, and the economic opportunity of trying to get Canadians there uh, from outside the re- the region back in for summer is of such great significance, and the comfort levels are starting to rise slowly among Atlantic Canadians for that to happen, that by the time we get to July 1st, and whatever the name of the day will be on July 1st, um, I, I think things will be more in sync. So this is more about party politics and an upcoming election than it is anything? Oh, my goodness. I mean, you only need to look federally where you and I often speak, yeah. right? It's all about it's all about managing the, the transition from people being fearful to people being joyful. Uh, and that's what they're all trying to manage for those who are going to the polls. Rankin, the prime minister, they want to get that mix right because they don't want to get it wrong. They don't want people to be voting when they're angry. They want people to be voting when they're happy, when there's been (laughs) family reunification, when there's been double vaccination, when their kids are at summer camp, their sports leagues are up, they can see their friends again. So that's the human condition that, again, Premier Rankin and um, the Prime Minister are trying to tap into. So obviously Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, two different premiers from two different political parties. Yeah, that has less to do with it, though, to be fair. I mean, look, Rankin is is certainly aligned, more aligned with Justin Trudeau than Blaine Higgs is. But the Atlantic region on this issue has generally been pretty uniform. I would suggest to you that Higgs isn't acting because, you know, he's trying to help out Aaron O'Toole. Uh, yeah. I think Higgs is just reacting to local pressure uh, in New, New Brunswick and the desire to, to to have the place fully open. Of course, the frustration then is when there isn't symmetry there. You know, to get to Nova Scotia, if you're driving uh, through Canada, you got to yeah. go through New Brunswick. The other bit of frustration is New Brunswick is, I don't know if Graham raised this issue, New Brunswick is apparently looking at opening its border to Maine. So now think about that. If New Brunswick can find a way, and the federal government allows this to open up to Maine, then we're basically open, the, the border is open. I'm fine with all of that, but there are a lot of others who won't be. So Maine will become the, uh, will become the funnel through which uh, Americans who want to come to Canada come in. So if you're Ian Rankin, again, you have to demonstrate that you're concerned about managing this uh, appropriately, too. Uh, obviously, the Maritimes uh, poster provinces for the bubble and, and how they handled their way through this, stuck together, rode in the same direction, take your cliche. Uh, is this just fatigue? Yeah, there's a lot of that. And, Scott, I need to correct you. The Maritime provinces don't include Newfoundland and Labrador. We like to refer to ourselves as Atlantic Canada. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I misspoke. I'm sorry. That's all right, buddy. I had to correct and you. Fact, no, you go right ahead. You can still play Great Big C for me. Um, yeah, this is frustration. So, look, there's all, there's two streams of frustration, right? There's the fr- stream, stream of frustration of people who are still a bit anxious. And then there's the stream of frustration of those who just want things to back to be back to normal and who need to get back to work and want to make money and don't want to lose and keep their families fed. They don't want to lose a second season of tourism and, and, and mentally also want to feel like things are coming back to normal. So it's, it, it's so much psychology and politics and not as much public health because I think, as you alluded to, Atlantic Canada has done so well in all of this um, and they've generally been together on all of this. And as we're seeing across the country, double vaccinations are rising that's improving the protection against delta virus the number i think what nationally we were below a thousand yesterday what are we below 270 again in ontario today Mm -hmm. everybody wants to stay on that track so people are feeling a bit like please give me normal as you mentioned uh we're up over 20 percent that have had the second shot once we get fully vaccinated uh people think after that 21 day period 14 day period what have you uh you're home free are you surprised we don't have a list of things we can and cannot do if fully vaccinated like the cdc has in the states 
I think we have versions of that, but one comprehensive list in Canada. When have we had anything comprehensive around this yeah. whole pandemic, right? I mean, well, we get different guidances from different provinces, and it's kind of you pick out the common ones. The only thing that's been consistent, I guess, and that's changing now, is picking out the symptoms of COVID. I'm not surprised. Um, the federal government has taken the view that the provinces, by and large, should set out their own provincial guidances uh, on what to do and, and not to do. I mean, the stuff around masking and distancing, I think, is pretty universal across the provinces. Size gatherings and stuff are varying. I mean, look, Alberta is opening fully up. I think so is Saskatchewan on July 11th. So good luck, Scott, finding a uniform set of directions on what to do and not to do. Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on and bring you up to date with the latest in regard to Canada's ongoing uh, issues in uh, with our relationship with China. Uh, and, and a very interesting story that's coming out of the Globe and Mail today. Uh, more than 40 countries urged China on Tuesday to allow the human, uh, UN Human Rights Chief uh, in, uh, Immediate Access... Sir, let me start that again. More than 40 countries urged China on Tuesday to allow the UN Human Rights Chief Immediate Access to look into reports that more than a million people have been unlawfully detained, some subject to torture and forced labor. The joint statement on China was read out by Canadian Ambassador Leslie Norton on behalf of countries including Australia, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, the United States, uh, to the UN Human Rights Council. Of course, uh, Beijing denies all of this uh, and instead points to uh, our treatment of our indigenous population as a distraction. Um, we'll talk about that and all of this. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and is with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good to speak with you, Scott. So uh, what has happened here? How did this all start, this current exchange? What set this off? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a, an example of our government, you know, virtue signaling in effect by rallying countries to um, to call for access to China's Xinjiang region and uh, condemning what Mr. Trudeau refers to as the systemic abuse and human rights violations in Xinjiang. But um, we're not actually, you know, going to do anything substantive to uh, defend the international rules-based order and Canadian values against genocide. So, you know, we did this, and the Chinese uh, predictably did this sort of whataboutism, uh, suggesting that um, we don't have the moral authority to, to criticize China and Xinjiang because of the discovery of the 215 graves of, of uh, indigenous children in the, um, in the backyard of a former um, residential school. So, you know, then, then Mr. Trudeau um, defends Canada fairly rigorously and says that we did have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission between 2000 and eight in 2015 and said where is china's truth and reconciliation where's commission where's their truth um china's not even recognizing there's a problem but uh, objectively speaking you know the the chinese government's criticisms which they did in alliance with other countries like russia belarus syria and so on um you know are just completely wrong-headed one would have thought that if we are sensitized to the idea of at least cultural genocide of our indigenous population that we would all the more not want to see this repeated in another country so yeah. the chinese government's um, you know counter is really uh, is really just the dog barking it doesn't make any sense uh so it's just hit for tap what one says the other will say the opposite uh why the change tone for the prime minister here what's different here why now i don't think there's a lot of change in tone i mean you know, we, we hear a lot of promises from the government. You remember uh, more than a year ago they promised a reset of relations with China and then decided later on that they couldn't do a reset because the Chinese situation was evolving too quickly. I don't actually agree with that. And then we heard from um, from the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs that Canada was considering legislation comparable to the Australian Foreign Influence um, Transparency Scheme Act that would require 
office holders and former office holders who are recipients of benefit from a foreign state to to reveal that, to be transparent about it and report it. Um, and, you know, he promised that in February. Absolutely no action there. And the other activities we've taken have been in collaboration with other states. So, you know, on the one hand, we talk a good line, but when it actually comes down to doing anything that the Chinese embassy would be unhappy about, Canada doesn't seem to have the backbone to to actually follow through. So will there be a visit to this region to investigate uh, the Uyghur situation? Um, and, and, you know, I mean, to quote their officials, well, they're looking for a friendly visit, not one that comes with a presumption of guilt. Is this, will this visit ever see the, day, the, the light of day? Oh, God, no. I mean, you know, the, the UN would require unfettered access to the uh, concentration camps and the and the ability to interview the Uyghurs without um, the Chinese officials overseeing them. And the Chinese uh, Communist Party already has a tour that they that they allow friendly foreign nationals to go on that shows uh, happy Uyghurs enjoying um, learning Mandarin and singing and dancing under pleasant uh, under pleasant circumstances, mm. albeit that the that the re-education facilities have um, razor wire and uh, and guard uh, guard uh, towers and dogs and so on. The Uyghurs are clearly not there of their own free will, and they're not allowed to practice their religion or speak their language while in there. None of this, you know, the the, the reality on the ground that we know about through very solid evidence, including the. Um, restricting Uyghur women's fertility to try and reduce the numbers of Uyghurs in China is so evident that the Chinese government's denials of it would ring very hollow. And I don't think that the UN would be party to any kind of Potemkin village with regard to the Uyghurs. They'd want to actually be able to investigate and get the truth. And I don't think the Chinese want that truth to come out. Uh, obviously, there's a long list of countries here that uh, are supporting what has been for, uh, put forth in, as far as investigation into the treatment of the Uyghurs. Obviously, as you mentioned, uh, China came back and said, well, look at what you're doing, and then got Russia on board and all the rest of their allies. So does that mean the lines are clearly drawn here? Who's on what side and who is on the other of this, uh, not only with the Uyghurs, but all of these issues? Yeah, I mean, we're talking 40 countries, but, you know, the U.N. has multiples of 40 countries in members, and I think the Chinese are able to rally more U.N. support than uh, we are. So, you know, when it comes down to resolutions on these matters, the Chinese position um, wins the majority vote. That being said, I think it's great that there are 40 countries that are willing to stand up for human rights and uh, and oppose crimes against humanity and genocide, but, uh, you know, you despair about the much larger number of countries that aren't. So is China feeling the heat of this? And I ask you this all the time, Charles. Is, is China feeling the heat from this? Do they care, or is it full steam ahead in world domination? I think it's uh, still full steam ahead as far as we can make out, whether there is some, you know, enlightened elements within China who would like to see the government uh, change its approach. We we aren't absolutely sure. You know, it seems that Xi Jinping is firmly in power, that he's surrounded by yes-men, and that um, a, a lot of people inside China, um, not just in the party, think that the, the forced assimilation of the Uyghurs is uh, something that they support, regardless of the brutal and uh, and horrendous uh, way that the government's going about it. So, you know, it, it, it does seem that lines are being drawn, and I, I do see that the future is probably leading us into a Cold War with China if we can rally enough support from like-minded allies who are prepared to defend freedom and democracy and human rights. That remains to be seen. Many have said, and we've talked about, you know, China plays the long game. I mean, they're here for the, they're, they're dug in for a while, and they, if they don't get it today, they'll certainly get it uh, 20 years from now. Will this just, as you mentioned, keep heating up? Well, I mean, that's the problem with our system is that, you know, the officials who in Canada who are looking the other way or, you know, enjoying some benefits from, from trade with the Chinese regime know that five years on they will no longer be in power and won't be facing the consequences of of activities that go against Canada's overall interests and weaken us in terms of preserving our our way of government and our 
alliance with like-minded liberal countries. Um, whereas the Chinese, as you say, the leader thinks he's in power for life, and they take a very long-range um, approach. And this program of annihilating all vestiges of the Uyghur ethnicity and culture is, from what I've been told, a 40-year project. You know, that's uh, that's thinking mm. pretty far ahead. Um, uh, we, we've certainly uh, getting to uh, let's let's focus on the Winnipeg lab story. There's some new information there about the two scientists uh, that were fired uh, in in regard to patents and patents back in China. Can you shed any light on that? Yeah, I mean, we find out that that Chou Xiangguo and her husband had registered patents in China with regard to these dangerous viruses without acknowledging their affiliation um, with Canada because, you know, as employees of the Government of Canada in the um, National Immunology Lab, the rights to those patents belong to the Government of Canada. So it's hard to know what's going on, but certainly what they were doing um, is a violation of the terms of their employment uh, with the Government of Canada unless they had terms of employment with the Government of Canada that, you know, exempted them from this obligation as civil servants to transfer the rights of their discoveries made in the course of their employment as um, as Canadian um, civil servants in, in a national federal lab. Um, and if that's the case, that would be more of a scandal. It could be that this is, in fact, why they why their security clearance was removed, because they evidently were were not uh, sharing the findings with the government of Canada, but were um, patenting them in China. Very so uh, let me let, let me try to to simplify this as uh, you know someone like me. Uh, so basically, they're in a, these two scientists are in a Winnipeg lab. They're doing work for the Canadian government, uh, but any of the intellectual property or the intellectual property. Uh, I would understand it belongs to Canada because it's being discovered on Canadian soil. They are now are they're accused of taking this and 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 giving it to China and patenting it patenting it in China. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean it it, it amounts to intellectual property theft from us, the Canadian taxpayer. But the scarier part is that, of course, this kind of technology can be used for hostile purposes like bioweaponry. So, you know, there could be a lot more to this story that, than meeting the eye that's gradually coming to the to see the light of day. And I think Canadians would really like to know um, what's going on there. And if it's all innocent, then, um, you know, let's, let's find that out and we can move on. Um, how can it be innocent considering the relationship we have with China now? I mean, do we really have to rethink this? Well, it really comes down to, you know, all of our relationships with um, entities of the Chinese state. You know, all the researchers who come to Canada to engage in research in university or, or labs or engage in collaborative research with Canadian scholars are employees of the Chinese state. And they are required to obtain information that the Chinese state needs to serve its five-year planning pro- program and rise to power. So the question is, is it possible to have Chinese researchers in your laboratory engaged in sharing, you know, sensitive research with you uh, without it endangering um, Canada's national interests and security? You know, that's a question which is currently under investigation in Alberta, where the Alberta government's put a 90-day stop on all of the four universities, their interactions with China, to see if, in fact, um, these exchanges with China are serving Canadian interests or whether they are being used by the Chinese regime to obtain sensitive technologies that can be used by a hostile power that may in future challenge us and the rest of the West. Uh, are we to assume that all of these relationships are like that? I mean, is it wrong to paint them all with the same brush? I think it remains to be seen. I mean, you know, maybe there are there, it's possible to engage with China the same as we engage with other countries, you know, with the same system like Germany or Japan, you know, where they have the notion of free intellectual inquiry. But really, the Chinese scientists are tasked by the Chinese regime to engage in certain areas of research. And if they're able to use, you know, our free and open system to obtain that by collaboration with Canadians, you know, they may well be doing that. But, I, 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 you know, I think that 
these things deserve careful exploration and investigation, and up to now our government has not been agreeing to do that. And many will ask, what's in this for Canada? And the answer is money, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I think that in the case of scholars, you know, they, they receive funds from Chinese granting agencies. They may have opportunities to travel to China to set up parallel labs to have research assistants working for them. You know, the scholars are out there to further the bounds of knowledge and explore their scientific uh, interests. But it turns out that if the Chinese government pays partially for the research, that they expect the rights to that research to be transferred to China. And so it calls into question whether publicly funded universities and and laboratories um, should be, in effect, subsidizing work that is being done to benefit the Chinese uh, regime. Have we defined our new relationship with China? What is a relationship? What do, what do we do with this? Is this a friend or foe? Well, I think that, you know, our government believes that we can continue to have productive, collaborative relations with China, particularly on matters like uh, climate change. But I think, um, you know, if we if we scratch the surface a bit more, we find that it's very hard to have fair and equal and reciprocal relationships with China. You know, China wants to put the Huawei 5G into our telecommunications. There's no way that any Canadian telecommunications technology would ever be authorized for uh, Chinese um, telecommunications. You know, they, they just that just never would happen. So it's not a two-way street. Similarly, with the Chinese acquisition of Canadian mines and, uh, and infrastructure, you know, they, we wouldn't be, under the Chinese constitution, foreigners cannot acquire natural resources inside China. So, you know, why is it that we, we give way to them when they won't give way to us? Why can't we have relations that are based on balance and fairness and reciprocity? You know, why do we allow the Chinese regime to have these one-sided relationships? I think that we really, as a nation, we have to be looking into that and deciding how it is that we want to engage with China and how to ensure that our engagement with China is to the benefit of Canada. Uh, maybe because we spent the last 40 years selling this relationship, that this is the golden goose, that this is where all the money is, this is what we have to do, and now we got to change that. Yeah, I mean, I think in the past we thought, well, we need to diversify our dependence from the United States, and there's China, rising power, so let's um, let's work with them. But I think we find out that contracts with China have a lot of strings attached, you know, political strings and um, and financial strings. You know, if you if you want to benefit from trade with China, the Chinese government expects you not to criticize their genocide or or their pro- or their expansion into the South China Sea or you know, their harassment of persons in Canada or their cyber espionage, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that, that, that's the, as an integrated sort of all of government approach, they won't, they won't give us anything unless we give them something back. And I think what they're asking us to give back really goes against our Canadian values and, and overall interests in, in the future. On that note, any sort of update on the two Michaels at all? Well, we have received um, more details about the conditions under which they've been held from people who have been held in similar conditions, and it sounds really bad, you know, maggots under the mattress and mm. lights on all the time and awful food. And, you know, it. we knew it was bad, but recently we've got much more detail about exactly why they're in such miserable and horrific, horrific conditions as compared to Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver, who's living in a multi-million dollar mansion and can go out shopping and get together with her friends anytime she likes. Charles Burton with us, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at Macdonald Laurier Institute, talking about our ongoing uh, contentious relationship with China and how it moves forward uh, to keep both sides happy. Charles, thanks for the time as always. Be well. Good to speak with you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.